I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. This is a podcast for what we call mind discipleship. It's a podcast for those who want to set their minds on things above. That's where the name of the podcast comes from, from Colossians 3, 1 and 2, where Paul encourages us to set our minds on things above. Setting our minds on good, beautiful, and true thoughts, on uplifting, encouraging, life-giving, biblically-based thoughts from above is not easy. And that is why we do this podcast, to provide for you in each episode a thought from above that you can dwell upon so that your heart will be warmed and you will become an epiphany of grace. My guest today on the Things Above podcast to have a Things Above conversation with is Emily P. Freeman. She has been here before. I'm glad that she's back. If you don't know Emily P. Freeman, she is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Simply Tuesday and A Million Little Ways, The Next Right Thing, and a new book we're going to talk about today titled How to Walk into a Room, which comes out in March of 2024. Emily's also the host of the Next Right Thing podcast. She earned her master's in Christian spiritual formation and leadership at where? Friends University here in Wichita, Kansas. In her writing or speaking, Emily always seeks to create space for the soul to breathe, offering fresh perspective on the sacredness of our inner life with God. Emily and her husband, John, live in North Carolina with their three children. So enough of all that introduction. Welcome back to the Things Above podcast, Emily P. Freeman. Jim, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here always. It is fun. It is fun. We've been doing this for a while and I've been on your podcast and it's just, it's fun. And sometimes we even get to hang out when you're in town for the residencies for the master's class that you teach in. So it's great. It's really it is great. It, and we're, we get in a little trouble sitting in the back in those residencies. Yeah. We got to be careful. Yeah. We do. We can have side conversations and we have to be, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> So much that it's so fun to talk about. And you've written a new book. I actually was reading some of the endorsements. And I'm going to read one. Is that okay? Sure. This is, this is one of the endorsements. It says, our world is starved for wisdom, which is the knowledge of how to live well. This book is full of wisdom. Life forces us all to ask, should I stay? Should I go? And either way, how should I stay or go? At the end of every chapter, you feel like Emily has figured out something important and the joy of reading or writing is that you get to figure that something out right alongside of her. The writing is classic Emily P. Freeman, elegant, gentle, thoughtful, and honest, but the wisdom keeps sneaking in every few pages, almost with a smile. This book is uplifting and inspiring, while at the same time challenging and convicting. Who can do that with such grace? Emily can and does. I am so grateful for this book. That is quite an endorsement. That is ringing. I mean, yeah. what a stunning endorsement that this yes. person has written. I don't know who wrote it, but it's, uh, it's they, they didn't sign it, but wow. <laughs> An anonymous endorsement. An anonymous endorsement. Do you think the listeners are already onto? onto I, feel, I feel like they know you well they, by now. You probably I know do. how I write. Yes, that was the pleasure of my endorsement. I, I enjoyed reading it and writing that endorsement because well, everything I said is true. It's a really great book and it does inspire and challenge and convict and, and it's, it's classic Emily style writing and I, I, I dig it. 
Okay, so here's question one. This is this is the easy one. Maybe it's easy. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Emily, why did you write this book? Well, first of all, in all seriousness, I am so grateful for that endorsement. And anytime you write a book, you always, you know, it's like you've written other books before, but you've never written this book before. So you never right. really know how things are going to turn out. So I am so grateful for your words. And speaking of your question, why did I write this book? You know, The Next Right Thing came out in 2019. And that was a book that I had been kind of thinking about for a long time. I didn't think it would ever be a book. It, it was a podcast first. I thought it would only be a podcast. But I really, in that book, wanted to explore that time in our lives when we have decisions to make and how formative those times can be because we're so aware of wanting to kind of get a nudge in the right direction. And so never in my life, when I look back in reflection, have I been more open to the voice of God, the wisdom of others, uh, my own inner voice when I've had a decision, then when I've had a decision to make. And so that sort of was the next right thing. Like, you know, what does it look like to, you know, become the person who I am becoming as I make decisions? What is that formative, transformative process like? And, and then what are those decisions? You know, the next right thing was more everyday life decisions, kind of what is my next right thing? And how can that, how can that question inform all my decisions. So that, like I said, that came out in 2019. And then, you know, now about five years have gone by. And I have found in the conversations that I've had since that book released, you know, they're always about decision making and discernment. I have a lot of conversations about that. But what the conversation has sort of started to morph into and the ones that I find people who have the most compelling, the most maybe, I don't know if the word is burden or the most uh, pressing questions about their decisions is when they are trying to discern if it's time to stay or go. And that can be in a relationship, in a faith community, at a job, vocationally, just in a city or questions they're having about, you know, the different, I, I use the metaphor of the rooms of our lives. I think about sort of our whole life. If all of life is like a house, then the various places where we spend our time and our money and our where we you know hang out with the people they're like different rooms and some of those rooms we know this is a room for me and other rooms we think well, the that room over there that one's not for me but we get into we we have a lot of struggle and tension when we're in a room and we begin to question is this still the room for me and how can i know for sure and so that's what this book is really speaking to is yes, there it is a decision-making book, but I would maybe take it a little step further and say, this one's sort of like, let's sit down together and begin the the hard and difficult, but really formative and transformative work of discernment. And so that's sort of what I'm setting out to do with the conversation that this book starts is how can we begin to evaluate the different rooms of our lives and hold the questions that we have about them openly without judgment and really begin to answer like, okay, what do I really want? How can I hear God's voice in this? And then how can I look for the arrow to my next right thing and take that step without, you know, feeling like if I leave this room, I'm, I'm leaving behind my identity. I'm leaving behind who I am. So those are sort of some of the questions that I'm attempting to maybe not answer, but at least have a solid conversation around. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what I was saying in the endorsement. I, I felt like as a reader that I was I was journeying with you in the process 
and then learning with you about how, how do you make these, these kinds of decisions. And if I understand what you were saying, the next right thing, of course, that's a, that's, that comes from 12 step, right? I mean, you do the next thing, the next right thing. And it also, I, I think of Dallas Willard's quote, which was do the, do the next thing you know to be right, expect God to bail you out. And on, on one level, I think what you're saying is a lot of things are fairly, I mean, they're kind of not simple, but you know, when I sit down in a restaurant and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to eat? And maybe it's like, I think I'll eat something healthy or it's, there's not a lot at stake, but yeah. In this book, you're talking about things that, well, there's a lot at stake here. Like if I'm going to change vocations or um, move physically to another city or um, change churches or, I mean, something that is a little bit more involved, that's what you're trying to do with this book. Is that right? That's right. And I think what I try to do is to maybe illuminate the narratives that we have about staying and about leaving, because so many times it's not even so much the thing that we're working to decide if it's, you know, the quote, I, I say the right place to be. I don't know. Is that a thing? I don't know. We could get into the, the theology of rightness, but <laughs> it, the place for me now, you know, the place where I believe I'm to be, it, that's one question. But I think a question beneath that question is all the stories that we have and bring with us about what it means to quit something or what it means to stay. And and maybe sometimes we stay in rooms longer than we ought to, or than we want to, than maybe even God would be inviting us to, because we have some really strong narratives at, at play about what does it say about me if I were to leave this? Am I abandoning something I started? And it's not just about our action, but it becomes about our identity. And I think that can we can get caught up in that without even really realizing that we're caught up in it. Yeah, exactly. And I I, I love that about the book because you you are uncovering these narratives that we have that we don't realize that we have, which is, you know, that's that's kind of my jam as well. I like to help people on earth, like what, what's really driving that? What, is yeah. this how you really think about God or, or you or life or, and, um, and I, I, yeah, it's, it, it does it in, in such, and I, I love the style of writing as, as it's just classic you. I mean, the, in the way that you do it, you tell stories, you, um, it, it, like I said, it's gentle. You, it's, it, you're not like forcing like here, here's the right thing. You have to do this now. It's just more <laughs> of an invitation. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to try out a new question this year for authors. And, and here's my question. This might be hard. And if it is, we can edit it if you give it like a crummy answer. Is that okay? okay? okay. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Describe your, this book in one sentence for people who are just learning about it. Well, this is a book about the art of discernment. And it's the art of knowing when to stay and when to walk away. And I, I'm lucky because that's the subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> You just took the subtitle. That's brilliant. But see, but really, if you think about it, saying the book in one sentence really should be the subtitle. So I did this work a long time ago. Yeah. But it really is. I mean, it's about the, it's, it's the art and I say the art, but really that's, that's to to me, that's a discernment word because I, I don't think discernment is a right or wrong because it's so, there's so many different factors at play, seasons of life, ways that you're walking with God, things we've learned. Mm-hmm. You know, what's right for me today may not be exactly the same tomorrow or a year ago or a year from now. And so that's that's what it means to be in relationship, right? With with divine God and with my family and all the all the things, but that idea of knowing 
when when to stay and when to walk away from whatever the thing is. I, I would say at its at its most basic level, I, I feel like that's what this book is. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you said it's the art of discernment, not the science. Like it's not it's never really clear cut. You you work your way into the situation, you listen for leading and and discernment, as you said. Um Who's I, I can't now get that rock song out of my head. Should I stay or should I go? Who sings that? It's the Clash, Jim. It's the Clash. And, you, and I know because I have had it in my head for about a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so thanks for asking. Maybe some bumper music to this episode. We'll play the Clash. <laughs> I don't want to, probably can't get copyright on that. Uh, probably not. Um, well, in part one of the book, which is about about leaving, how to walk out of a room, you have a really lovely statement, and I'm going to read from your book, if that's okay. That's great. Is that okay? I, I have copyright permission now to read your book. Absolutely. Here we go. You write, whether it's a job, a friendship, a community, a house, or a habit, there are a million reasons why it may be difficult to imagine leaving, especially if that space, relationship, or community has meant a lot to you. If you're in a season of life when you're considering making a change, here are a few questions you might be asking yourself. Should I stay or is it time to leave? Am I allowed to even ask that question? How bad does something have to be before I can let it go? What if I helped to build this place? What if this place built me? What if I stay and nothing changes? What if I leave and everything falls apart? Our whole life is like a house and every commitment, community, role, and relationship is like a room. At some point, we'll find ourselves walking into new rooms, leaving old rooms, being locked out of other rooms, or looking around at familiar rooms and questioning if it's time to move on. Such good stuff there. And that's your metaphor, right? That's this idea of the room represents. Say a little bit more about that. Well, first I'll say a lot of those questions that you just read were literally things that readers have said over the years Mm. that I've received in emails or DMs on my Instagram. and, and, And I sort of reworded some of those. But those are real questions that people are asking. and. For me, you know, it's funny, this idea of, you know, this metaphor of the rooms way back in 2017, wasn't that long ago, but we'll just say feels like a long time ago um, when I actually first started my studying at Friends University in the master's program. And I remember coming home from that very first semester residency and, you know, some friends back home knew I was doing this program and they asked me, um, what are you learning? Which is, you know, it's like the dreaded question. You want to be asked, but then you have to come up with an answer. And it's tough. It's like you just now asking me, tell me about your book in one sentence. <laughs> you know, that's tough to answer. At least at least I'm kind of trained to do that for a book. But from yeah. a for a learning experience, it was difficult. But I remember what came out of my mouth were, was two things. One was your power narrative that I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That's one thing I would share because mm-hmm. thank you for summarizing that. Because <laughs> I said, <laughs> you know, this this one sentence kind of summarizes one thing I'm learning in this graduate program. But the second thing I shared, and this was 2017, was I, w- I would say, and I'm learning how to walk into a room. And that usually caused people to question, like, say more about that. And I think at the time, for me, it just, it, it was so much about, um, walking into the room as the person who I am, not as the person who I think I ought to be. And that was sort of where that began in in my mind of that idea of every room we walk into, we have a choice to walk in as the person who we actually are in Christ and 
you know, with all of our insecurities and all of our hopes and dreams and fears and all the stories and narratives that we have brought with us. Or we can kind of walk in as a faux version of that. But either way, here we are. And and I think it was then that that kind of idea of like, well, all of life is like is like a diff- is a room, and we're always walking in every room that we walk into. We bring all those things with us. And I think this idea of so, what does it mean then when we walk into a room? Yes, as the person who I fully am. But what if the room itself has changed, or what if? What if something about me has changed? And while this room was a great room for me when I was in high school, what if now this room isn't quite the room for me anymore? And what does it look like to make a change? And what does it mean if, you know, does it mean I chose wrong way back, you know, 10 years? You know, a lot of times people think, well, I prayed for this room. I prayed for this job. I prayed for this space where I now am and I'm so grateful. So if I leave or make a change or even ask the question, is that allowed? And does it mean that I'm ungrateful? So I should just stay here because this is what I wanted then and this was right. And and so that idea of the rooms, I think, gives us, you know, obviously it's a it's a giant metaphor, but but I think it gives a great framework and language to be able to talk about it. Cause I think we all kind of understand that concept of, you know, if life was like a house and every, you know, then there's all these rooms that we're in. And some of them we leave and some of them we stay in forever, and some we're just in for a short time. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's sort of how that metaphor in my mind mm-hmm. began. Yeah. Well, I remember you said that, um, and I don't know if it was like when you were teaching in the master's class, but you used that phrase that I'm learning. This this program's taught me how to walk into a room, and I was completely baffled. I was just like, you mean, like, do you saunter in? Do you say, do you... <laughs> strut in. I don't, how do you walk into a room? I didn't know what you meant at all. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. And and now I like, Oh, I think I get it now. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, you know, the program itself was, it's a spiritual formation and leadership program. And I think another piece of that, Jim, just to kind of niche down if we can, is the idea of what does it look like to walk into a room as a leader, even when you're not the one who's in charge? And I, and I think that might be where that sort of started is there are some rooms that we're in that we want to influence change in some way, but we're not the ones who have the keys or we're not the ones at the front. And so what might it look like then to, yes, find the rooms that are right for us, but then once we're in them, how do we walk into that room in a way that, you know, might influence change, even if I'm not the president of that room or the one who is looked to as the leader, the quote unquote leader. Yeah. Well, okay. You end, you end the, the opening section, part one, with a chapter on changing your mind. And as I went back and was rereading the book for, for this podcast, I, I started to wonder, was that a pivotal chapter in the book or am I reading into it? But it seemed like that the, the chapter on changing your mind, there was a lot of weight to that chapter. I, I don't know. Was that the reader making that up or what? You're the author, so you tell me. Yeah, I think so. Because just like we talked about how our narratives um, are always at play, the story that we're telling ourselves, whether it's, you know, based on something that's true or based on something that we think is true, is is a really powerful force. And this idea of changing our mind about it can be about the smallest things or about really big things can be really scary for a lot of us. And I think before we 
are able to, with integrity and with confidence, leave a room that's been really meaningful to us or that has been good to us or that we prayed to get into and now we're questioning it, before we're able to make that move, maybe into the hallway, if you will, I do think sometimes it requires us, at least at some level, to be open to changing our mind about something. Either that's just changing our mind about what's right for us now, or maybe there's a theological issue that we're questioning, or maybe there's a relational thing at play. But I do think that I, I did sit in that chapter as, a, as the writer of that chapter for a really long time, because for me, this might not be for everyone, but for me, I find that the invitation or the challenge to change my mind is intimidating and can be very scary because I think sometimes we, again, we have a idea about what that might mean to change our mind. And in some cases, changing your mind, depending on the situation, can, can lead to some rejection by groups that you might be in, whether that's family, whether that's church, whatever it is. And if you change your mind about something, you might be out and the stakes feel really high. And so I wanted to spend some careful time walking through that. Not, not that I'm trying to change anyone's mind necessarily, but just the concept and idea of changing our mind that, that what if it was invitational and not threatening? Mm. Mm. That's good. Yeah, that that that's the challenge, isn't it? I think I think we um, typically develop patterns of thinking, and they feel very safe. And then you don't have to question anything. It's just, well, it's all there. Change, changing your narrative, changing your mind on something is pretty scary because it does mean I'm going now into a new place with these new things, and uh, it's hard. It's hard. And, and so, you know, part two of the book uh, is about pausing and you call it discernment in hallways. You mentioned the hallways. Um, wh why is it important to pause in the process of discernment? Well, I think in some ways, I mean, you know, we talk about a little bit about the difference between discernment and decision making. I think a lot of us, well, I'll speak for myself. I would rather have a decision to make than a movement to discern. Why? Because decisions feel really sort of step one, step two. Like I have a question, I get an answer. Discernment, though, is more step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, it feels like there's a lot more to it. Right. That that you you don't necessarily get an answer, but you get one next right thing. And that, you know, again, that concept is always going to be with me, that idea of doing the next right thing. But discernment is a slower process. I think it requires communal listening in some ways. It requires sitting with, even if you think you know what you want to do next or what, what God is inviting you into next, sometimes you got to sit with it for a minute or 10 or 20 or mm. a year, some, in some cases, to know that, yeah, this is, this is my next right thing broadly, not just one next right thing, but this is sort of the direction I'm headed. And you just can't rush that. And so this idea of, of a hallway, um, you know, the goal in life, if, if, if you would let me extend the metaphor, the goal isn't necessarily to find all the right rooms we're supposed to be in and never be in a hallway. And, and if you're in the hallway, you're in trouble. I mean, I don't know about you. When I was in elementary school, when they call you out in the hallway, there's a problem. Like <laughs> your teacher's going to have a talking to, to you, have to talk to you about something. Um, 
And so the hallway wasn't necessarily a place I wanted to be. But when it comes to life, I just, I think we're always, we're always in, in some area of life, we're always in a room that fits really well. In another area of life, we might be in a room we're questioning. And then in a lot of areas, we're in a hallway and that hallway represents a time, the in-between time, the ellipses in the, in the sentence, the not here or there, but sort of in that liminal space of waiting or standing at a threshold. And so I just think that can't be rushed and it, it takes time, but in that space, a lot of really beautiful and maybe even invisible for now, things are happening at the level of our soul where we are talking with God in ways that maybe when we're super comfortable in places that fit us really well, we don't see the need to talk to God in that way. So I do think there's a gift in the hallway of those liminal spaces. And again, it's just a, it's a time that, that can't be rushed. Mm. Okay. You dropped a big word there, liminal, because that, that means a threshold. That's that's Typically, that means that space between one place and another. And yeah, I think that's that's really good. You know, I teach uh, at the university mostly with undergraduate students, and I think the the statistics are the average undergraduate changes majors two point three times. <laughs> I don't know how you do that a third of a time, but anyway. So, but when you think about that, and I see it happen all the time with with students that I they'll come to my office and we'll talk. And I even think my own life. I mean, I started college thinking I was going to be a high school English teacher because that's really all I had at that point. But then when God got, you know, Jesus ambushed my life and everything started changing, I couldn't imagine that. And I remember, I remember when I went to um, the English professor, he was my, my advisor. And I told him I was changing majors. And um, (laughs) I'll never forget something he said. I, I said, I said, yeah, I'm going to change majors. I'm going to study religion and theology. And uh, he said, well, what's happening? I said, I just feel this, I don't know, it's like a higher calling. And he's like, maybe not a higher calling, it's a different calling. And I went, okay, (laughs) gotcha. You know, being an English teacher would have been a a high calling too. But uh, that was was a a hallway for me of like, Mm -hmm. and I remember feeling uncomfortable that what's it going to be like? I mean, where am I going? And then the idea of going into ministry was weird to me. And that took years for me to try that one on. And then after I did that for a few years, I, I was in the local church for three and a half years. Oh, that was long enough for me to go, I'm not really good in this room. This is my best. <laughs> it's not my best room. Yeah. And uh, I love it. I'm, I'm still in the church. I preach. I teach. I'm, I've never not been in the church, but it's not. that's not the best vocation for me. So it took. I had to go through a lot of hallways to get to the place where I am. And I, I, I think that's one of the things I love about your book so much is it's helping me sort of see that discernment happens over time because we can't see too far ahead in our lives. You know, the old metaphor, it's kind of, it's kind of a cheesy one I've heard preachers use in the pulpit, but it's the one about your headlights. You know, your headlights can only see a couple hundred yards ahead. And in your life, you can't see too far because if you did, it would be, be like if someone had told me, when I was a freshman in college, this is where your life's going to go. It would have freaked me out. Right. <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't have, if I had a crystal ball and said, that's what's going to happen to me, you know, I, mm-hmm. but, and that, I think that's why your book's so helpful is that it's, we're all going through all this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So excellent. That's really good. Okay. Here's a, this is a left field question. I don't know if you're going to get this on any, any other podcast. Ooh. Who knows? You might, I don't know, but I, I love the story of John's grandmother, Butter. Yeah. Which B-U-D-D-E-R. And I relate to that because my our name for my grandma was 
Bram because my cousin John couldn't say grandma. He said Bram and we all, oh. she was Bram forever. Um, <laughs> so, so his grandmother Butter and you, you compare her life to the life of Elvis because of proximity and things. Um, and I love the sentence you have near the end, which is don't let the ending steal the narrative. But I mean, unpack that story a little bit because I liked it a lot. Yeah. So, so Butter, when I, gosh, when I, when I met John, Butter was old then. And, you know, she ended up living till she was 104. Mm. And her life was the only way I know how to describe her life is that her life was one of waiting. It always seemed like she was waiting, but happily. And and it seemed like she was just kind of waiting to go and be with the Lord. And she probably said that a few times. But in in that time of her, I mean, that, that feels like a really long hallway in many ways. But her husband died when she was, I don't know, maybe in her 50s. It, could that be right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because John John's dad was one of four and he was in his early 20s. So, so her husband died when she had, you know, from a 21 year old all the way down to a seven year old. So she raised these four boys, you know, the younger ones by herself. She never remarried. Um, and, but, but her, she had, she lived a a very faithful life. She lived a quiet life. Um, just, and you mentioned Elvis, her house was probably a mile and a half from Graceland. Um, just, you know, that was kind of their stomping grounds, but, it was so interesting to be around Butter because she would just, she was just delighted to be in the room. It didn't matter who was there, what we were doing. She could, she, sometimes she just couldn't hear very well. And so she would just smile and nod and just be glad to be with us. But I remember one visit in particular, it was, I think the summer of 2016. And we, it was the 4th of July. We were sitting out by the pool, John's uncle's house. And we were, you know, John often, we were around Butter. Um, we just ask her questions. And sometimes, you know, now we have iPhones, I would just record her because, you know, you never know, this might be the last time we're with Butter. She's a hundred and some years old. Uh, but I remember he was asking her some questions just about her life. She taught Sunday school. She, I mean, Jim, she lived by herself. She drove her car to church at age 104. Like, and it, you know, she was, she was doing all right. Um, but she would share about her, just her Sunday school class and her second graders that she taught. And even though it was just these regular things, it was compelling to listen to her talk. And I, one of these conversations we had by the pool that 4th of July, I recorded and ended up sharing on my Instagram account with people. I thought, you know, this is really interesting to us and maybe people would like to hear butter. And let me tell you what, I think to this day, those stories that I shared on my Instagram account of Butter sharing sharing about her life and just answering some questions, I've I don't think I've ever gotten more response from people. And I since then I really tried to figure out why. Um, and I think it was just because we are longing for to see a life that's lived in faithfulness, and that is I think it's Eugene Peterson who talks about along obedience in the same direction. And I, and I think that was her life, but man, it takes a really long time to live a faithful life. You know, that that's what a faithful life is, is over time, small decisions after the next and without any accolades. I mean, that was the thing about it is she was, you know, maybe quote unquote famous in her own small hometown because of her age and her, you know, commitment to her church and all the things. But like, she didn't have a web page, you know, she didn't have a, a bio anywhere. She was just, she was butter. She was Sarah Freeman. She's just living her life. And so it was, um, 
it was lovely to be with her. And we didn't know at that time that that was the last time we would be with her because it was about six months later that, um, that we learned that her house had caught fire and she died in the house fire. And let me tell you what, talking about uh, an ending and not letting the ending steal the whole story. I mean, it was really tempting those first, especially those first few weeks and months to be really angry and think, really, Lord, after 104 years of her life, this is how it ends. Um, but I, I ended up coming to, you know, and I think, I think John's whole family kind of came to a peaceful place. You know, it was a, it was a volatile piece at first and sometimes still is, but of just recognizing that, that yes, uh, this was really tragic the way this ended. Um, but the ending doesn't get to define the whole story. And I think that for so many of us, we have a really, it's really hard to move on from deep griefs and goodbyes that we didn't anticipate, didn't plan and wouldn't have picked because of the way it ended. Mm. Um, but I think there is a gift in knowing that even when the, even when there is no closure, we still get endings. And so what do we do with that ending that we get? Um, and how can we walk through it with some sense of peace on the other side? So that's, that's something I'm still learning, but I think watching and witnessing Butter's life, both in life and in death, um, what it looks like to, to, to find closure or fight for closure when the closure just really isn't there naturally. Mm. Yeah. Cause it's not always, the endings aren't always as we would expect. And yeah, but you're saying don't let that steal the larger narrative of, of in this case, her life or whatever it is that you're discerning about where you're going. So good. I love that. Here's a question that I think might, might be interesting. It might not. I'm trying out some new questions today. Is that okay? It's, it's very exciting. Well, you know, I don't know where this is going to go. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite chapter or maybe a section or even paragraph or sentence or something that you, that, that from the book that, cause I I've noticed in the last few books I've written, I can, I think I can answer that question, but I, I don't know that I would earlier, but did you, did you, as you look back on it, like, oh yeah, that chapter was for yeah. whatever reason, rewarding or sure. illuminating or whatever. You know, I think I'll, I'll mention a couple for, for very different reasons. I think the one we've already talked about practice changing your mind um, that one and maybe arrows and answers. There's two chapters right next to each other. Those are the chapters that took me the longest to write. Um, I mean, I'm talking like I worked on those chapters for years. Uh, you know, the whole book I wrote faster than I wrote those chapters. I think um, it just they just took some time. They're deeply personal, um, and they and they just felt important. And so I would say maybe chapter five, practice changing your mind, was one that I am proud of, but also took me a really long time. Um, and I think it's an important chapter in the book. But I'll also say one that I think is just, I don't know if fun is the word. Fun doesn't feel like the right word for this book, but maybe I'll use it anyway. <laughs> um, chapter eight is called Readiness or Timeliness. And I'm I'm proud of that chapter. And I and I I really enjoyed the the conversations that I think can come from th- that chapter, which is sometimes you're ready to go, but it's not time. Other times it's time to go, but you don't feel ready. And so what do we do when that's the case either way? Mm. Sometimes it's not time to go and we're not ready. So yay, we get to stay. And other times it, it can go the other way too, that it is time and we're ready. And and I would say that type of ending, it's time to go and I'm ready. 
Wow. What a gift. Like that's when you, that's when you're toasting that those are the graduations. Those are the retirements. I, mm -hmm. It's time I'm ready. Th that's when we throw a party. Right. But it's those other types of endings where I'm, I'm ready, but it's not time or it's time, but I'm not ready. Those are the times when we hold the tension and we, we have to then, um, you know, dig down deep into our toolbox of, of ways to walk through an ending when it's not the way that we hoped it would be. And that's why people read books. I think, I don't know that people read books to know how to, you know, oh, I'm, I'm graduating. So let me celebrate. I mean, that's great. But, but also we know how to do that because that's, that's fun. Yeah. Um, but it's those, the ones that are uh, where there's a, there's both and where there's this tension between where I feel on the inside, but where I need to be on the outside. When those two things don't align, how do I still move forward? And I think that chapter on readiness and timeliness hopefully will help with that. Mm. Oh yeah. Those are great chapters. And um, yeah. And in hearing you answer that question, it fits with how I felt too, that some, sometimes the the chapters or sections that I, I love the most were the ones that were the hardest. Like I had to dig really deep and stay with it. And I think just the perseverance and the struggle is one of the reasons that I I, I like one chapter, but maybe more than others. And then you also, though, said something about the ones that were kind of delightful, like sometimes they just come to you. And I know that like songwriters will often say their best songs came, just came in like a bird in the window. Like they didn't know it was coming and it just did. Yeah, that's and right. I, I love those sections of a book too, where mm -hmm. you're just, it just flows and it's easy and it's fun. Um, wow. Okay. Well, um, so here's, here's a, a last question. If you're ready, this one's easy. Oh, I can't wait. I think, I think this is easy. <laughs> what do you hope people will take away from the book? Oh, I, more than anything else, you know, the word that comes to mind first is, is freedom is, and I think, you know, I guess I mean that in several different ways, but I just know that for me, before I wrote this book, even I, maybe before the next right thing, I, I just found myself worked up about certain decisions because I was so worried that I wasn't going to make the right one or that God was going to be mad at me or that I was going to regret it later. And man, that's a really uh, distressing way to live. And so both with The Next Right Thing, but maybe especially with this one, because this one kind of touches on some deeper held narratives and some maybe more, maybe some more painful situations of, of, of leaving or being confronted with a time when you, you know, maybe you're you're leaving and it wasn't your choice. Maybe you wanted to stay, but because of whatever reason, it's time for you to go. And there can be some heartbreak there, but but I think there can also be some freedom. And so maybe that's the word that I'm hoping for the most is that there would be some freedom to question, freedom to be who you most fully are, uh, and to connect with God in the ways that maybe maybe you've not either had to or been invited to connect with God before or even thought about. So to me, all those things maybe are encompassed with that one word freedom. Mm, that's good. Well, I've never done this as the interviewer, but I, I'll just interject and say the thing I hope people take away from the book is knowing that it's okay just to ask these questions. Yeah. Um, as I was reading the book, I, I was thinking, boy, you're dealing with some some really hard ones. You gave some examples in your own personal journey that were, they weren't easy. They were really challenging decisions you were making. And, um, and I thought as a reader, this is giving me permission in the sense to, to recognize that when I have a hard decision, it's not, it's not 
some sin or something. Like it's not a bad thing. It's yeah. It's a natural part of of the journey of life. That, that there will be times when we have to dig deep and and make harder decisions, and and that it's okay. That's why I meant. I, I said what I did in the endorsement that yeah. if I felt like, oh, I'm journeying alongside Emily and she, I'm watching you make really difficult decisions and you're telling me, here's why, here's what's at stake, here's what I'm feeling and I'm relating to it and it's it's helping me recognize, oh, I can do that too. Um, so that's one of the, the hopes I have for the book and I'm sure that's what's going to happen to a lot of people as they read it. Well, I'm, I'll just say this final thing real quick, because I'm, I'm really glad you said that because you're right. I do share a lot of personal stories in the book, but it, there was a little bit of a risk in that, Jim. And I, and I know you can probably relate because I never want it to be like, here's, here's my story and it should be your story too. Instead, it's, it's, I'm going to be vulnerable with the, with the gift I hope of, of sharing sort of the behind behind the closed door of what we were thinking here. And maybe that can invite you in your own life to reflect of, of how you might be thinking too. And that it's okay to do that because, you know, I don't, I found, and I think this is a writing principle that the more specific we are, the more broadly it applies to people, which seems like it should be the other way around. It should be like, we write really broadly and then it applies to mm-hmm. everyone. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the specificity is where we find the relatability. And, and that's maybe just to kind of piggyback on what you said, that is what I hope for, is that the story, though a lot of it is about me and my family and kind of our own space where we found ourselves, that somehow in in a way that that I couldn't really make happen, but somehow it also can be about you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's what happens. I think that's why we like fiction. You know, we're, we're watching the story unfold and learning from it, thinking, oh, wow, that's so much like this, or I've, I've felt that. And um, and in this case, it's nonfiction. Like this is really your life, and you're honestly telling us what you were dealing with. But um, I felt that same thing. Like I, I'm relating to this and understanding it, and I understand the subject of the art of discernment much better for having read your book. So, if nothing else, um, this one reader gained a lot. So there I'm you go. I'm so glad. There you go. You can just you can just say that. I don't know if the book's going to sell or if anybody's going to get anything. Jim Smith did. Jim Brian Smith. One, one reader. One reader. <laughs> Wichita. That's it, Wichita. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll post one review somewhere. <laughs> Five stars. Well, Emily, as usual, fun talking with you. Uh, it was fun having dinner with you. You got to have dinner with Megan and I. and I sure did. It was so fun. Our home, and I hope that happens again down the road because that was it was too quick. But we'll do that again. And um, gosh, I'll see you in, in just a couple months, I think, for the next residency, right? And also, Emily, you are going to be speaking at the Apprentice Gathering in September of 2024, September of this year. And we're so excited that you're going to give one of the plenary talks. I can't wait. I'm so excited to come back. TAG is always such a fun event. And it's going to be so lovely to be there on the stage. It will be great. It's always my favorite time of the year. The weather's fantastic. Great lineup. Brian's on. Other great speakers are going to be here this year. So that will be fantastic as well. I can't wait. Awesome. All right, folks, go out and get this book. It's really wonderful, How to Walk into a Room by Emily P. Freeman. Thanks, Emily, for being with us today. Thanks, Jim. I hope you join me next time. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast. And if you'd like to donate to the Things Above podcast, you can do so on our website, apprenticeinstitute.org. Click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. It's really easy, and it would mean a lot to me. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. 
And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>